Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus and for his blood. We do trust his blood. We do trust your great love through him, his great love for us. In going to the cross and suffering there in our place for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. He bore our griefs, wounded for our transgressions. Make clear to us the cross tonight through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. One Sunday morning, we're heard from God's word in Psalm 46, a hallmark passage in the Old Testament to provide comfort for God's people in the face of trouble. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And basically, he goes on to explain that we will not fear anything. We have nothing to fear as Christians, even though the earth gives way. We have nothing to fear. Well, a sermon about having nothing to fear can raise a few questions as we hear it and encounter God's word. We believe what it says, but we may ask ourselves, um, how do we then approach uh, in our heart, in our feelings, what should we expect in facing death ourselves or the death of a loved one? Persecution, losing great things, things that are precious to us, comforts. Uh, to persecution, or just losses in life in general. There are plenty of losses in life in general, aren't there? Does it mean we aren't sad that we don't fear? How does that work? Is grief okay for the Christian? And if so, how is that grief different from the person who is not a Christian? How does our no fear change our grief if grief is okay. Well, 1 Peter 1 is another hallmark passage for those suffering, hurting. But from the perspective of the New Testament, first century Christians experienced many of the losses and hardships that we experience in our lives. In particular, uh, in, uh, for Peter's audience, it was persecution, the threat of suffering and beatings and loss and evil at the hands of those who were against Christ and against his church. And so persecution was a real threat. And he wrote to comfort and help those who were under that threat. But it does speak to us, these truths, this truth, this passage to us and any and all of our losses in this life as those who are beloved children of God and still suffer losses. But this perspective of the New Testament doesn't give us a different angle than the Old Testament, just a different focal range. We're just closer up to our hope We're much closer. Our vision is more clear. We're closer to the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, we're right in the middle of the fulfillment of God's promises between Christ's first and second coming. Listen to how Peter describes our privileged position as those who live on this side of the cross. The end of chapter 1, or chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, things about which we sang this morning. Turn with me now, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text will be verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 3 through 9. I spooked some of you. You were flipping there already. Well, this is our text this evening, and 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 tells us that Christians can rejoice greatly in the midst of great grief. In fact, our grief is not compensated for, not just compensated for, by a reason to rejoice, but itself is a cause for rejoicing in that through our suffering and through our trials and in our grief, God is preparing us to see him and meet him through it. Well, if we know God through Christ, our grief truly is and can be good grief. Let's read together 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Peter writes this to suffering Christians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, Peter tells us here, the Holy Spirit tells us here, that we may rejoice with exceedingly great joy in the face of great trouble. Inside, even great grief in this life. Well, how does that work? How is it that the Christian can rejoice greatly in and through great grief? Well, there is a lot there, isn't it? This is a rich and a dense passage, so let's crawl inside of it and see what we can find there in answer to that question. How is it that we can, Christians, can rejoice in and through great grief? Well, first, we can rejoice in our great grief, in, we can rejoice in our grief because God gives us hope greater than hurt. He gives us hope greater than hurt. Read with me again verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is writing, of course, as we've said in part, to comfort Christians uh, who are enduring great trial. And the first thing he must say after a formal greeting is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he will say, he can say only because God is God and he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he is blessed, happy in himself, full in himself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That already is a comforting reminder to those suffering. Well, the three verses here are about the hope of a Christian. When we use the word hope in everyday conversations, of course, we usually mean, and it's fine to use this word this way when we do, I wish, or wouldn't it be great if, um, but there is no wish or if 
uh, inside the word hope when we use it as Christians, speaking of our hope as Christians. Notice with me a few things here about the Christian's hope. The Christian's hope is according to mercy. Verse 3, it's according to mercy, God's great mercy. We certainly can't take this for granted. He could have said what he said without saying according to God's mercy. Peter didn't take it for granted. We need mercy and we ought not take his mercy for granted. Thinking on God's great mercy for us is an encouragement in suffering. Without mercy, there would be no new life and no hope. If God acted toward us according to justice, we would be done. We need mercy. If we're to have hope, we cannot get what we deserve, right? Christian's hope is according to mercy, and it's also, verse 3, through resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and through Our new birth, our resurrection from the dead. Our hope is made possible through Christ's resurrection from the dead. This either happened, by the way, or it didn't happen. And our hope as Christians, and the thing we look forward to and put our hope in here as we gather, is something if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it is everything the Bible says, or it is nothing if he didn't. And we're to be pitied most of all, as Paul tells us. Remember, Peter is the one who denied Christ three times when it meant associating with his suffering and his abandonment by his friends and the world and his persecution. Well, here, Peter takes on anything after Christ's resurrection, emboldened by the knowledge that Jesus is who he said he was because he rose victorious over death from the grave. He's not just throwing this in here, just like he didn't talk, throw mercy in there. It's critical. It's Uh, critical to our Christian hope. It's through Christ's resurrection from the dead. This is why our hope is a living hope. Our hope is alive because the one in whom our hope is, is alive. Christ is alive. If he is not alive, our hope is dead. And certainly anything in which we would put our hope that is not Christ yields a dead and empty hope. But our hope as Christians in Christ is a living hope for it's in him. And our living hope is based on that real historical event, the resurrection from the dead. And if we have a living hope, then we have been in reality and historically resurrected from the dead spiritually by Christ. We have new life. It says we've been caused to be born again according to the resurrection from the dead. And we do as Christians look forward to the day when we will also be bodily raised from the dead as well. So our hope is according to mercy. It's through resurrection, Christ's and ours, and it's to an inheritance. You cannot miss this. He couldn't use one word like inheritance to get at it, but several. In the Old Testament, inheritance meant land, material blessing. Our inheritance is very much better. Even for Israel, it was God promising them inheritance of land and blessing. But even those blessings would be temporary And they would sell themselves die in that land. But through Christ, God gives us every spiritual blessing in him. And the promise of a new creation. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. This inheritance that we receive as the children of God is imperishable. It never goes away. Can you think of something that never ever goes away? No, you can't. 
at least in this life, in this world, it is undefiled. It is a perfect mixture of forever perfection, whatever that would look like. It is undefiled, pure, unstained. It is unfading. It never gets worse. It only gets better. Its joys don't dry up ever for eternity. It's unfading. This is pretty much unlike anything that we know, isn't it? Even the best things we know, our happiest things are imperfect. Our strongest buildings fade, are perishable. Our best food certainly is perishable. Some food is not perishable. No matter how good we take care of ourselves or how great our life is, every human body will perish. One writer said it this way. I love this. The inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time, and it is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. There you go. That's our hope. Uh, I sold cell phones for a few years. I This is the second illustration I've told from those days since I got here. I guess I will have too many from that experience, but you'd have someone come in just, you know, most folks were, they were excited about phones. Some folks were way too excited about the next phone. Some of you may be them. Um, uh, And then you're in two years later, you're in a year later, mad, you got complaints, and you're wanting the next thing, and you keep coming in and keep touching the phones and feeling the phones and wanting to talk about the phones, then finally you're eligible and you come in and you get yourself a new phone. It's just a cycle. The thing wore off after a couple weeks. And teenagers, uh, I mean, in our own experience as teenagers and teenagers, as we know from observation, I mean, this is actually not just teenagers, but this is certainly true of phones. Um, life can be fixed on the next gadget, can't it? Can't it? Can you think of a gadget that you looked forward to, that you hoped in, that you thought would make your life really, really happy, but now you look back and see that you were blind? You couldn't see that it would dry up, its happiness, its joy would fade even quickly. Um, poor folks, there was a, an annual event in, this, this, in Louisville called Thunder, big air show, some cities, big air show. Hundreds of thousands of people out there, and you always knew to work the day after the air show because everyone lost and broke their phone, right? Uh, it was a great day if you were made money off sales. Uh, uh, and we sold refurbished phones, you know, uh, phones that uh, would help folks out in a jam, and plenty of folks came in in a jam after their phone was perished, defiled by rain, or just faded from their own boredom with it. You have a gadget in mind, don't you? A toy in mind, a car in mind, a house in mind. Heaven, our hope, is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. Well, this inheritance is nothing less than the new creation. Peter says that we were born again, raised from the dead. We are new creations, the Bible says. But in 2 Peter 3.13, he says, According to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what we will inherit because of God's mercy. We deserve to cry forever, but there he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will be with him. And that's what will be so great about it. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
So our hope is according to mercy, it's through resurrection, it's to an inheritance, and it's preserved by God. He says it's kept in heaven for us. God is its maker and God is its keeper. He likes to keep his things nice. It surely is safe. No one can break in and do anything to it. There are no elements that can ravage it. And not only does he keep it, but we are kept by God for it. It is kept for us in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is good to know that when we grieve through trials and keep believing, that it is God keeping us in those moments and preparing us to meet him, isn't it? Matthew six nineteen through 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where there your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice in verse 6 we're told that we may be grieved by various trials now for a little while. Now for a little while. The hope that we have of an inheritance is fixed because God is keeping it for us and it is unlimited and it is eternal. Our suffering, however bad it may be, however bad it may be, and it may be bad, is temporary and for a little while. There's no better verse in all of scripture to hold this idea in your head and in my head than Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. Well, Christianity does not take the grief out of grief, although it will take much grief out of grief. It adds the promise of much greater good on the other side. And if you are a Christian, there is light at the end of the tunnel. See it in scripture and see it in these verses. We can rejoice in our grief because God gives us hope greater than our hurt. And secondly, we can rejoice in our grief because God gives us glory through our grief. He gives us glory through our grief. Read with me verses 6 and 7. After explaining this hope, this inheritance, he says, In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we see that grief isn't just something to endure, but something to enter and to engage with great purpose for the Christian with a purpose to grow in our faith. If you prayed to grow in your faith, the answer to that is trial. And uh, we should want what trial and grief through trial produces. We do have that kind of a perspective on our suffering that is only given by God and supernatural. Notice what Peter says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's worth saying that Trials and suffering aren't a normal part of the world. By normal, I don't mean common, but they weren't a part of the world that God made as it God made. In Eden, there was no suffering as we know it. Loss, great sadness, certainly no persecution for following God. The world was not made, and humans were not made to know this, but trials are also, as they are 
necessary under the control of God. If necessary. There's something God can do something about, but they are used by him as a carpenter uses a tool on us. As a carpenter uses a tool. Notice the trials do two things. First, they test the genuineness of our faith. And secondly, they strengthen our faith. Lifting weights, if you do that sort of thing, tests the genuineness of your muscles, right? And it strengthens them. I've heard that people do that. The trial acts on our faith like a fire acts on gold. Fire shows gold to be real, and fire cleanses gold of impurities, doesn't it? And yet gold perishes. What God is doing to our faith through trial will never perish. Whatever you're experiencing and going through, what God is doing to you and to your faith through it, you will take with you for all eternity. So Christians can and do and even should know great grief. Maybe that's obvious to you, but maybe it's not so obvious. Maybe you've been conflicted in your own heart before God about the appropriateness of being deeply affected by something terribly sad and great loss. Perhaps you've been told that sadness is an indication that you loved that thing you lost or that person or that privilege too much. And maybe that's so. Maybe that's so. We should always be asking ourselves that question. But as you wrestle, remember that Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Take great comfort in this. When Jesus arrived at the scene in John eleven thirty three through 36, we read, Jesus was deeply moved by his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept, and not for a moment did he fail to trust his father. And Jesus knew that he was dead, and Jesus knew that he would raise him from the dead. And Jesus wept. No doubt the tears were from a deep sadness at the way things were, and an anger at the way things were. Death should not be, and losses like that should not be. So there's a place for grief in the Christian life, but our grief is different. Chicago pastor Erwin Lutzer says this so well. Grief is expected in the Christian life, but it is different from the grief of the world. There is a difference between tears of hope and tears of hopelessness. You see, not only do we have something greater in glory that is the greatness of our grief to look forward to, a hope greater than our hurt. We will also know glory through our grief. Through our grief. Our faith, which is refined by fire of trial, is put through trial in order that it might result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, It's a productive sadness, trial, grief. God has planned an inheritance on the other side of his grief, and he has planned for glory through our grief. Surely our purified faith will rebound to the glory and honor of God when we meet him. But there's something else going on here. There's a sense in which our faithfulness through trial will be shown a glorious and honorable thing toward us. We'll be shown glorious and honorable. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 23. A commendation we should pursue. 
to the one who is faithful. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. And this will happen, we notice, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're here for the Lord's Supper this evening. You remember what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper? Paul writes about that saying, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul says. Until he comes. And whenever we meet, we celebrate his resurrection and his death, and we look forward to, with hope, his, his return. Until he returns, when we break bread, we remember that Christ was, as Isaiah writes, acquainted with much grief. We remember that his body was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And until he returns, when we drink from the cup, we remember that we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. As the author of Hebrews says, but we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus knows grief and suffering and loss and abandonment and persecution. And as those who have been born again to a living hope, God gives us great glory through our grief as it tests and it purifies our faith as we look forward to Christ's return. So we can rejoice in our grief because God gives us a hope greater than hurt, because God gives us glory in our grief. And third, we can rejoice in our grief because God gives us a savior surer than sight. A savior surer than sight. Verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice the word him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with great joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And that salvation is precisely what it is. Salvation because it unites us to the one who saves. To the Savior, Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Christ, you love Christ. Though you do not now see Christ, you believe in Christ. And rejoice with great joy. Don't miss this. The reason these believers could rejoice, and we can rejoice in our various trials, is because... We know and love and believe in the one who saves, Jesus Christ. We don't rejoice in no trials, even in a day future when there will be no trials. Not an, inher an inheritance of anything that wouldn't include Christ, but in an inheritance of an eternity with God and with Christ. Remember what Jesus prayed before his death to his father in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And, in, and this is eternal life that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Isn't that a great prayer? God loves to answer that prayer. He does answer that prayer. That eternal life, by the way, doesn't start when we die because our knowledge of God and our knowledge of Jesus Christ does not start when we die. It starts when we believe, when we rejoice, when we love Jesus Christ, when we are born again to a living hope and an inheritance that is him. It starts now and it is more sure to our hearts than the things we see with our eyes. Peter has seen Christ, but these Christians hadn't. And we haven't seen him in the flesh. But they loved a man they'd never seen. And we do too. Because we do not have to see him to know him. Robert Kellerman has written a helpful book, God's Healing for Life's Losses, How to Find Hope When You're Hurting. He describes a process of redeemed grief and the worship of God through grief. I like how he says this. Your path toward God during suffering begins with a casket of loss. Finding yourself in a casket, you've been waiting on God, wailing out to God even. Rather than turning to false lovers to tame your soul, you now turn to your untamed God who captures your soul. You worship God. In crying, you cry out for God's help. But now in worship, you cry out for God. In comfort, you receive God's strength. But now in worship of God, you receive God. In wailing, you long for heaven because you are tired of earth. But in worship of God, you long for God because you miss him and you want him. We love Christ because he first loved us. We rejoice in him for the joy, because for the joy set before him and for our joy, he endured the cross despising its shame. And then a joy that God imparts to us through Christ and by faith cannot be described with a word. Notice he says, rejoice with great joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. In fact, perhaps one of the best words you can use is the word inexpressible to describe the kind of joy that God can give. We rejoice in our grief because God gives us hope greater than our hurt. Because God gives us glory through our grief. And God gives us a savior surer than sight. You notice that Peter looked to the past, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our new birth. Look to the future, our hope, our inheritance. And all of that bears on the present, our love for Christ and our rejoicing even in grief. There is great comfort in this, isn't there not? If you weren't familiar with this passage, you are now. I pray that it comforts you and that you use it to comfort others. But I pray that you would know this comfort because you are found in Christ. The same thing is true for this passage, 1 Peter 1, as is true for the passage we studied on Sunday, Psalm 46. If Christ is not your refuge, there is everything to fear. You realize that? If Christ is not your refuge, there is everything to fear. And if Christ... It's not your hope. There is no hope. There is no hope. If you do not know God through Christ, I pray that you would come to him. Find him as your refuge. Put your hope in him. Set your hope in him. Trust in his resurrection from the dead. He was killed on a cross, by the way, for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. 
trust in that cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And no hope that is offered to you through him, imperishable hope, undefiled hope, unfading hope.